Welcome to the Enchanted Ears Podcast, where we discuss anything and everything Disney. I'm Angela. And I'm Joe. And today we are going to have the epic conclusion to our ranking of the Disney Renaissance movies. Insert your own epic music here. Yes. So if you did (laughs) not hear last week's episode, go back and listen to that first. We give an overview of the Disney Renaissance it is the 10 movies that take place from 1989 with The Little Mermaid all the way through 1999 and Tarzan. So we give an overview of that, and then we go through our 10th uh, through 7th picks. So just a recap, we had Rescuers Down Under at 10, The Little Mermaid at 9, Hunchback of Notre Dame at 8, and Pocahontas at 7. So we're going to be wrapping up the top 6 this week. Okay, so before we get into the top six, one correction from last week's show. So we we accidentally uh, said that Bernard from The Rescues Down Under was voiced by Paul Newhart. I think what happened is we mixed Bob Newhart, who actually voiced him, with Paul Newman. So, <laughs> yeah, this guy doesn't—he doesn't have any salad dressing. Yes, we got our <laughs> we got our wires crossed there. So it's actually Bob Newhart uh, that voiced Bernard. So one uh, one correction there from last week. It was a pretty slow news week this week, and we have a lot to cover. So I think let's just uh, jump right into our final countdown here. All right, let me get my goggles on. <laughs> Okay, so let's get back into the rankings. So these are our, our top six movies. I think as we go through this, we'll probably have some dif- disagreements. I know, I think I disagreed with uh, how highly we ended up ranking some of them. I think you probably disagreed with some of the ones that I fought for a little bit higher. So we ended up with a uh, consensus for the top six here, but I think we'll we'll probably talk about where we think some of them may move to and I, could see some differences. I will say that I think that you made a little a few more concessions maybe than I did. Um, but most of mine, that's how a good marriage works. (laughs) Yeah, I would say I feel a few of mine might move one or two places. I think you were advocating, advocating for some of these to be a lot or a lot higher, but I kind of talked you down from that. So yeah, yeah. I do. I do 50% of what you want me to do. And then I do 50% of what you tell me I want to do. So that's, that's a great marriage. Not true. If the shoe fits where. Marriage is 50, 50. So, all right. (laughs) All right, so let's jump into number six, Hercules. So, I, and I say that because I don't know. I struggle with this one being this low. But Hercules is a great movie. I did not remember this movie that much before re-watching it, and I really enjoyed it. It has some really great songs in it. It has um, you know, a great story. There are definitely some flaws to it, which is why it's sixed. But it's a really good movie. I mean, I really, really liked it. Yeah, I, I'd love I, to see this as live action. Yeah, I've come out against Hercules before and said that I thought it was really sexist. And while I do think that the character of Philatides is very problematic, I mean, our first scene we see him, he is literally peeping, toming, and up downing the uh, nymphs. Um, other than I, I that, I will say, I mean, he's voiced by Danny DeVito, <laughs> and so I, I mean, it kind of fits the voice. I mean, it kind Danny DeVito plays those characters that are a little you know off color Sleazy. i want to say yeah gross uh, so um but i don't think phil's that bad i mean i think i think you were a int- little overly harsh on i was gonna say that's a, that was our introduction to him but then he he that kind of drops off throughout the movie but that was just a really hard pill to swallow when i first yeah you saw men- that you mentioned it to me because before we watched hercules you, you were mentioning that that you had you know, recently watched a year or two ago and you're like oh i yeah. was gonna show it in my classroom yeah you're like i have some issues with the themes and so i was like expecting a lot worse and now i know from 
coming at it from a male's perspective, I probably don't see that as much as probably you do. But yeah, I definitely there, I definitely see where you're coming from. But I don't think it was it was that bad. Well, it was there, and then also the scene with Pegasus. It's almost like a Looney Tunes type thing where they create this beautiful other Pegasus to lure him away, and his tongue falls out of his mouth. I just think it's sending a really kind of bad message to young women um that you know all that's valued is is their looks and even meg i mean the second that hercules sees meg he like his jaw drops because she's just so curvy and things yeah he but doesn't she really... wasn't necessarily like a prize to be one i mean she was very oh, she stood she, up she's for a herself lot of, though. yeah she yeah. had a lot of agency herself which is respectable and i think that this this viewing um that's where i kind of found my solace is the fact that meg is spicy and i really appreciate her i like her i like how you know she does things she's uncomfortable with like it's established early on she hates flying but whenever hercules at the end is really in trouble she immediately goes to pegasus and she flies and you can see she's really physically uncomfortable with it but she's willing to make that sacrifice because she, because she knows she loves hercules and she also knows he's in the situation he's in because of of her but she didn't really have much of a choice right definitely now i will say you know we talked about the music you know i can go the distance that that's a great one the muses like all of the muses songs oh my gosh are great the gospel truth man i think you know hades is a really good villain you know on last episode i uh, like how volatile he is yeah, on, on last episode, we had uh, Lindsay from the Geeking on WDW podcast You know, mentioned that she thought Hades was kind of her favorite villain. And I, I think he is a good villain. I do kind of struggle. And this is where, as I was looking through this, like I wanted to rank Hercules higher. But I'm like, I, it, it feels right at six because, you know, one of the things is I, I didn't really buy his plan. Like his plan didn't <laughs> seem very fleshed out. Like he's a interesting villain. But he's not really a villain in that, like, he really wants world domination. He, he's a god. He can't die. I mean, he controls the uh, the um, the afterlife, the underworld, but he can come and go as he pleases. You see him more as, like, whiny, kind yeah. of, almost. And basically, he's just kind of mad at Zeus because Zeus gets to sit up and do nothing all day, and he has to control the underworld. So he And he can't kill Zeus, so all he wants to do is imprison him, and then what? Like, just... Do do what he's doing now. Just do whatever he wants. Okay. It's just it's a very kind of I feel like weak motivation. Okay, no pun intended, but to play the devil's advocate here a little bit, um, <laughs> what would you do with your life if you were an immortal being? Um, besides try to settle the score on some ways that you felt like you were wrong. Like it's not like you can die or there's any mortal like mortal peril peril for your life. So you would probably come up with these elaborate plans to try to get revenge on somebody that you've kind of had a rivalry with for millennium. Yeah, millennium. I guess. But I, I, I think what my thing is, is I didn't really see where the revenge was. And maybe I, maybe I missed it, but it didn't seem like Hades was mad that nobody worships Hades and everybody worships Zeus. It just seemed like he was more or less upset that he had to work when all the other gods didn't. But again, once he also wasn't invited to Hercules's. No, he was. Uh, he was, but he said he was late because he had to take care of the underworld stuff because Zeus made him do that. But it seems like if he imprisons Zeus, it's not like he's going to have any more freedom than he does now. Like he's still going to probably live in the underworld and do that stuff, which doesn't seem like it's that time consuming of a job, anyways. <laughs> so it just seems like what's the point? And I think that's why he he. Well, he gets defeated so easily because his heart wasn't in it. It was kind of this thing. He set up this plan. You know, it took him 18 years to do it. 
But it was like, really, in the grand scheme of things, what's going to happen to him? He's still an immortal god. It's not a big deal. And I think that's kind of why it it ended, you know, so so quickly. But you, know, you have James Wood voicing Hades. I think it's great. You have Rip Torn, who I immediately recognize voicing Zeus. Who I think is a great choice for Zeus. So you have a lot of you know uh, great voice actors here. Su- Susan Susan Egan was Meg. Uh, she actually debuted the role of Belle on Broadway so she has and she has she can sing well she has great chops I mean listen to I won't say I uh, I won't say I'm in love that is one of the the songs that I remember the most um from this movie I love the harmonizing in it I love Meg's character and how she's fighting with herself about this yeah yeah it's it's such a it's such a powerful really good song and then of course uh, yeah it's just it's awesome and of course you know, go the distance. Another great song. Um, yeah, this movie is is wonderful. Yeah, I think the other thing is I didn't really necessarily buy Hercules as a great guy. Mm. That he was do that he was that he was a great guy, but that that he wasn't just doing this for the fame. And I think I mean, and ultimately it plays into that that you know he can't become a god, which I don't know why they couldn't just make him a god. You know, pain and panic screwed up, which is. A hilarious copy of the Lion King. I yeah. mean, it's literally it is word like for almost word. word for word the Lion King. That yeah. is, there are a, f- a couple different sequences in this movie that are like word for word copies of another one of the movies that are in the Renaissance. Um, you see a lot of that throughout the Renaissance. But, but this is, I mean, pretty blatant because Pain and Panic were like, oh, I think we did it okay. Um, should we make sure we kill him? Oh no, I'm sure he'll die anyways. <laughs> and then Hades is like, oh, I thought he was supposed to be dead. And they're like, oh yeah, we us too. So I mean, that was a pretty blatant copy of The Lion King. But I mean, he didn't become fully mortal. I feel like the gods could have easily made him a god again. Like I just don't get why he had to go through all of that to begin with. And again, it seemed like he was really just doing it for the fame to be a god again and not necessarily like that he cared about the people which is i think why it took him sacrificing himself for meg to become a god again um and then why he had to give it up there's just a lot of questions around it that i feel like there's a lot of plot holes when meg dies okay so does this mean that he is no he is no longer a god it's done whatever or does it mean that he's going to live as a mortal until she dies because she totally is a mortal and then he can become a god like how does no it seems yeah i mean it seems like he's gave up being a god again which again why did he have to do that i mean hades doesn't live on olympus and and he's a god so why couldn't hercules kept his god abilities yeah until yeah until meg died again that that's just kind of the things and when we get to these top you know five or six you know I, i feel like we're nitpicking a bit but i feel like those are the type of things that if, if you if you fix a couple of those plot holes, I think this movie goes from six to potentially top three. You know, I mean, it's just it, it's those minor things that when you compare to some of these other ones that execute a little bit better matter. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I do think and going back to, you know, we've been saying some some bad things about it, but baby Pegasus is the original baby Yoda. Um, is, oh, that's a good point. He is so cute. And like I was obsessed with baby Pegasus when I was a kid and watching this movie again just kind of reinforced oh yeah he is absolutely adorable i wish he was a baby longer because he is just so cute um and also 
like there's some really cute like cool details first of all i do want to mention meg's eyebrows are crazy like they are like nuts the way that they're drawn they're like that 90s really thin but they also have a really interesting shape to them um the air harks like some of the touches of his fame are really funny like whenever um i can't remember if it's pain or panic um i feel like it's panic comes in wearing the air harks and then hades yells at him yeah i uh, love that meta stuff of how he had the merchandise and how essentially he was like if you had a superhero and you know you're gonna kind of have action figures after him i i did like that nod yeah that, w- that was really it was just really well done also i really liked the namian lion and you know Hercules kills it and then he wears it and you see, oh yeah, that's Scar. Scar like, yeah. I mean, it's just, obviously Scar's not the Nemean lion. Some people were like, oh, they take place in the same universe. It was just a tip of the hat to the Lion King, I'm sure. Oh, we'll get into some same universe stuff later. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I like the, I like the animation, how they made the gods all glow. I think that was a really interesting touch for the movie. Another thing that didn't make sense though is Hercules loses his strength, but he's still virtually indestructible. Like Hades, um, or I, it was one of the monsters that Hades called called up whenever Hercules made the deal to um, try to save Meg, save save her soul, get her out of the contract. He gets thrown like hundreds of feet, oh, hits a right. wall, yeah. and falls down. He has a black eye, and that's it. Like. How does that happen? I mean, and I know that these movies allow have to call for us to do some a lot of suspension of disbelief. A but, lot, yes. But yeah, that part was just like, ah, uh, um, yeah, that was a little rough for me. But Meg's overall character, I, I, I really liked it. I, I liked this movie is is really good. But yeah, I would say that just some of those little things that we found, that's really what knocked it down for us. Yeah, and again, I really like this movie. I would watch it again in a heartbeat, and I think. This is a an easy one that somebody could probably make an argument for and convince me to move it up a few more spots. And and overall, I do think it it does have a lot going for it. Um, but again, unfortunately, we put it at six. So, all right. So now number <laughs> five. I th- Sorry. In this advance. is where this is where we start uh, making friends. So, <laughs> this right, so, is where we so number friends. Number five. We have uh, Beauty and the Beast. And before we get into kind of our thoughts on it, let's hear from Becky from Disney in Your Day for why she picked Beauty and the Beast as her favorite movie of the Renaissance. Hi there. This is Becky from Disney in Your Day. And I'm here to share my favorite Disney film from the Renaissance era. It was pretty hard to choose because there's so many great movies from that time period. But ultimately, I have to go with Beauty and the Beast. It has so many great things going on between the characters, the music, and the story. I absolutely love Belle as a heroine. There's something about her that I just really appreciate. I feel like she's more spunky than a lot of the earlier princesses like Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty, and she's smart. I love that that she's smart and also kind of dorky, too. I mean, she's a girl that walks around town reading books all day as a librarian. I definitely appreciate that. And I'm also moved by her bravery, the fact that she follows her dad out to this castle, volunteers to take his place, is just very impressive um, for a young girl like Belle. There's so many other great characters between Lumiere, Cogsworth, Mrs. Potts, Chip, all the enchanted objects and the way they work together, the humor between Lumiere and Cogsworth. And just the way that they all kind of grow throughout the movie. I also have to mention the music from this one because it 
just has so many great, great songs in it. It's really hard to love uh, to pick a favorite, though I love both Belle and Be Our Guest. And of course, Beauty and the Beast is uh, just an iconic song. The Gaston song is hilarious. And the soundtrack overall is just so wonderful, which is one of the reasons why it made such a great transition to Broadway as a stage play. So between Belle and the music and all the fun characters, Beauty and the Beast definitely ranks as one of my top Disney movies of all time. All right. Thanks again to Becky for providing her thoughts. And we actually uh, interviewed Becky on our podcast a month or two ago, kind of all about Run Disney. So be I, sure to check that out. I think if it was you want episode more. 99 or 100. I think it was right around our 100th episode. It was right around that. Yeah. So be, be sure to check that out if you want to hear more about Run Disney. I will say Becky made a lot of good points. And I will come out and say initially, I, I kind of disagree with Beauty and the Beast being five. <laughs> Oh, you're going to throw me under the bus on this one? (laughs) I mean, I don't think it's that far off. I probably had it at maybe like four. So like, I don't want to make it seem like I had it at number one or anything like that. Um, But again, it gets tough. It gets really tough at this level. But I think she makes a lot of good points that, you know, especially Belle, her point about Belle being brave. I didn't really think of that, of how she really is doing a brave thing by saying, take my place instead of my father's. I mean, she's a young girl She's going to be locked up in there for a lot longer than her dad is. Yes. But but she willingly takes his place. And I do think there is a lot to be said about that. And I know kind of a lot of your maybe issues with the movie are with Belle and her not being as dynamic a character. And again, this is the third movie of the Renaissance. So it's still kind of early in, in how they're developing characters. Well, if you look at Belle and then you look at Mulan, the amount of agency that Mulan has versus Belle, I think is hard. And I do think that there's a lot to be said about Belle and going and taking her father's place. But one of the things that frustrates me about this movie is how much like, you know, in the end scenes, Belle, Belle is built up as this very, you know, they talk about her being a beauty, but they also talk about her being book smart. And I love that about Belle. Like that is one of my favorite things, but I don't see her using that book smartness anywhere else in the movie. Like she doesn't at the very end, I would love to see her involved in defeating Gaston. Yeah. You know, that's a really good point that, you know, we see her reading a lot of books and we're told, you know, she's, she's kind of book smart. But you never see that in action. And that, that is a really good point. It's kind of like it, it would be a lot more powerful. And I kind of see where you're coming from now as we're talking through it. It would be a lot more powerful if she came up with some sort of plan or kind of used that that showed right. or she showed inve- that action. Or she invented some sort of machine using that smart she got from her father and his ingenuity to you know help with getting rid of the, the bad guys or getting rid of Gaston. I just I want to see her use that and and, you know, become have just more agency at the end of the movie and not just in the middle of the movie um so yeah i think that that's that's really my big gripe but i love the music the music is one hit after another hit um we (sighs) yeah let's talk let's talk about what is great about this movie and and i think this is why i struggle with putting it at five and this is yeah this is difficult because this movie, and I think this is why a lot of people like this movie, this movie is really what kicked off the Renaissance. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, we look back now over this 10 movie period and, and, and people classify this as the Disney Renaissance, the second golden age of Disney, whatever you want to call it. And this is the third movie, right? This is the third movie. If you look at the first two, you had Little Mermaid, which which did well. You know, it did about $200 million worldwide at the box office. Then you have The Rescuers Down Under, which did like $50 million worldwide in the box office. And that was our, our number, number 10, 10 movie. And number nine, The Little Mermaid was number nine. So I think And those, they came back with this. Right. But those were, I think, two kind of weaker movies, especially Rescuers. I think if you had a third movie, which was not good. So if you didn't have Beauty and the Beast, if you had some movie that was poorly received, I think the Renaissance is dead. You're never talking about the Disney Renaissance. Mm -hmm. The fact that they came out with Beauty and the Beast, it was the first feature animation movie nominated for Academy Award. It had these incredible songs, Angela Lansbury singing Beauty and the Beast. I mean, it had two songs nominated for an Academy Award. I mean, one of them won, the Beauty and the Beast won, but Be Our Guest was also nominated. Be, I mean, Be Our Guest is such a fun number, too. I mean, you know, Lumiere and uh, I don't know, Lumiere or Lumiere um, and Cogsworth are such delightful characters. And to see Lumiere be front and center to sing this song and then kind of the fancifulness of the song and how not really it's not really based in reality but it's it's really fun with all the shapes and the plates and everything moving um it does it, it kind of reminds you of later like just can't wait to be king it's just a fun number and it's really one that kind of cements this movie as definitely having to be top five yeah and that's and, and that's kind of where i was going with it it's, i mean that's a, a great example i mean the musical numbers are just over the top and incredible in this the animation is amazing the ballroom scene with the cg animation today holds up i would argue against a lot of animated movies today i mean i was amazed re-watching this with that ballroom scene of how well that was animated and it, it, it definitely holds up today and i think all of those things together really you know beauty and the beast is what kicks off the renaissance because it was almost like it was disney animations coming out party and saying hey look what we can do we finally figured out how to incorporate this new computer animation technology to create camera angles and scenery that we could never have hand drawn we figured out how to do incredible music we figured out how to have incredible sidekicks and stories and characters and it was all put together in one in in a great storyline, too, that it really was like, hey, this is what we can do. And this is what kicked off the Renaissance, which is why I think a lot of people love this movie. And it is such a great movie because this is kind of the cornerstone of everything. Just a few more thoughts about this movie, because I did have some questions while I was watching it. Uh, how does Belle get undressed? Because she constantly is surrounded by furniture and things that are alive so that would be very difficult and problematic that is true <laughs> um also how is bell um like is she ch channeling Dwayne the rock johnson when she hoists the beast up and throws puts him onto the horse that is true i was wondering how she got him on the horse i think the other thing i find interesting and with all of these movies is they're also young in it so like we're told the beast is 21 years old before he turns 21 he'll stay a beast and he had 10 years and so be our guest they mentioned he had 10 years to do this so that means a witch cursed an 11 year old boy for being mean to her <laughs> which which i have which i question it's one really really rough to hold an 11 year old yes, boy accountable that's to my first question that and then two is where were his parents i mean so this is a 
parentless 11-year-old boy who a witch is cursing because he wouldn't let her inside. I mean, stranger danger. He shouldn't have let her inside. <laughs> so I, I, I think this was... I'm like, whoa, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, and also, I mean, what... Beast fights off an entire, like, I wanted to call them an army of wolves, a pack of wolves. Why would you want to be human again? I mean, that is an incredible superpower. Yeah, stay a beast. Yeah, yeah stay a beast. I would much rather be a beast than a human. Like, that's crazy. Um, and then, obviously, Belle's cool with them anyway. The other thing that really... And this is this is not a knock on Beauty and the Beast. This is actually a knock on one of my on my favorite, The Lion King, right? The final scene, the fight on the castle is essentially... Direct, almost again almost directly copied and used in the lion king because the beast goes to kill gaston he thinks better of it he lets him go he tells him leave and then gaston goes against his word and attacks the beast when he's not paying attention which is exactly what happens with scar so like and it's on top of a high place and of course somebody falls to their death so again they're using the same scene over and over again we already mentioned that the hunchback also kind of recycles this too so it's it's an interesting hey, if it works that out. keep it going so <laughs> and i think this one is also interesting because this is kind of like the first movie where you have like the hero is kind of also the villain like the vi- like the beast is kind of the villain for a lot of the movie but he's really a good guy just kind of misunderstood type thing i mean gaston is definitely a villain as well but the beast is very much an antagonist through a lot of the movie well he is and then the, the town is freaked out about like by him which is also crazy to me because the town sees him in the magic mirror and they freak out that this thing called a beast exists but they're completely cool with the existence of a magic mirror like why would they be point. freaked out that's by that point. technology yeah that, like, that's a great point so yeah it, it is a solid movie but there are some interesting plot holes oh one other thing first instance of Disney bounding in this movie because a guy comes out of a wardrobe and is dressed in the exact same colors as Ariel. So, um, like he is, he is dressed in, and I pointed it out to you. I know that when we were watching, it, I pointed it out to you. I'm like, Oh my gosh, he's Disney bounding as Ariel. So that's kind of cool. Look for Look out for that. Great. All right. And then before we move on to our next pick, uh, let's hear from Tom and Michelle from Hyperion Adventures podcast, because they also picked Beauty and the Beast as their favorite Renaissance movie. Well, thank you, Joe and Angela. It's such a pleasure to be here on the Enchanted Ears podcast for the first time. It's Tom and Michelle from the Hyperion Adventures podcast. Yeah, we're so delighted to be invited to uh, share some of our thoughts. Yeah, well, this is one of our favorite topics. We're huge fans (laughs) of the Disney animation Renaissance that took place in the late 80s and early 90s, all the way through much of the 90s. And uh, boy, this was a tough one for us to try and pick our favorite film because we like so many of them. Exactly. And, you know, to just find one and... It was tough. Yeah. But I think we did it. And ask us tomorrow. uh, We may pick a different film. (laughs) But I think for today, we're going to go ahead and focus on what, in my opinion, and I know Michelle agrees with this, is the best film that came out of that period for Disney, which was uh, the original Beauty and the Beast. That's correct. I would totally agree with that. You know, it, it did have some new features on how the animation was. I mean, when you look at the ballroom scene and how it's it's like 3D and just the way that the camera moves very much like a live action story would move. And it just really showed how they upped the game on the animation procedures that they were using to produce a film. 
Yeah, uh, it was just it's just an amazing film. It was one of the first films that started using some of this computer animation right. uh, that they were developing during that time. But more importantly than that, I mean, we're going to talk about uh, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman and yes. the music they put together for this because it's spectacular. Unfortunately, you know, for Howard, this was the time when he went to his great reward. But before that, he made sure that this film was everything we could have dreamed it would be and everything he hoped it would be. Coaching Paige O'Hara as Belle and the entire rest of that cast, which was masterful. Angela Lansbury, I mean, so good always. Yes. Yeah, the cast was phenomenal. Um, They really did bring such great talent. Uh, And like you were saying, with Alan Menken and Howard Ashman using all their skills from doing real Broadway and bringing that same level of performances to an animated, which is now a classic, animated classic, but which was really fresh and new then. Yeah, and, and the closing moments of it are, is just heart-wrenching and touching. And if it doesn't bring a tear to your eye the first time you saw it, oh, uh, you're, probably, you're probably dead inside because it's, <laughs> it, it's just, it's amazing when it happens. It also has some of the most iconic characters you're going to find throughout any of the Disney films. Belle, one of the greatest Disney princesses you're ever right. going to experience. The Beast. You know, you hate him, you love him, but at the end, you're crying for him when it's all right. said and done. And Gaston is a great villain in the musical number that, you know, just Gaston itself, just right. so good. Yeah. I mean, this is also one of those films, too, that when it did have it, the home video release, you know, became such a fan favorite for so many people. I, I, I don't know whose household didn't have to have that going over and over and over. Um, so it, it really was, uh, again, the beginning of something that was truly amazing and really guided, I think, Disney Company into saying, yes, um, this was a hit and we need to continue these efforts and continue to grow in this uh, animation arena. Yeah. And it holds up today. You can still watch it today on Disney Plus or whatever, and it still stands up uh, to the test of right. time, even though it's you know 30 plus years old, or it's about 30, almost 30 years old. Yeah. Uh, it still stands the test of time. Great film. One of the best that Disney has ever released. So that's why we love that right. one so much. You know, and like you mentioned, is that it is such a great story. And that's why I think we've seen it be successful in other arenas as well, you know, whether it be Broadway or the live action release. I mean, it really does hold up and it is such an endearing story for sure. Yeah, even he can still go to the parks, go to the Walt Disney World Resort, uh, go out to uh, Disney's Hollywood right. Studios and see the, uh, the stage play as well, which is also a lot of fun and good time. So, Angela, Joe, thank you again for yes. inviting us to be on your podcast. We hope this won't be the last time we get to join you, uh, but we really, really appreciated you including us in this wonderful subject. Yes, it was really touching and uh, we're anxious to hear what other people list as their favorites. Mm-hmm. All right, so thanks again, Tom and Michelle, for giving us your pick. You know, I think a lot of the points we made, they kind of made as you know as well of you know the music and the camera work with with the CG animation and everything. And again, I think those are all reasons to love this movie and could very easily make it the number one movie. I think for us, we liked some of these other movies a little bit better, but I think on a different day, you could very easily convince mm-hmm. uh, me at least that that Beauty and the Beast is number one. So. All right, so moving on to number four. So we have Aladdin at at number four. (laughs) I I think, I mean, I'll just make the argument that Robin Williams' voice acting and his role as Genie 
is gets it in the top five. I mean, I again, I think yes. I think on a, a different day, this is maybe three or two for me. Yeah, this is exactly my notes that I have in here. Is that there? I do feel like Aladdin has a lot of plot holes that we can kind of gloss over and try to and forget about because of. Robin Williams' performance and the animators, like how well the animators meshed with what whatever like Robin Williams was doing. You know, it's just so imaginative and creative. And um, that part is so much fun to watch. This movie is so much fun to watch. And it is because of that Disney or that genie character. Yeah, it's a beautiful blending, like you said, of the animation and the voice acting. Um, I think, you know, again, Beauty and the Beast had some incredible songs. Aladdin you know does it again and it's interesting that these movies came out a year apart because they have probably two of the best soundtracks i mean there's a lot of great music in aladdin with mm-hmm. uh you know friend like me a whole new world Prince Ali, yes Ali yeah the arabian nights at the, at the mm-hmm. intro um i think again you know the, the animation of the cave of wonders holds up in this movie as well in the same way that that mm-hmm. ballroom scene holds up in beauty and the beast you know, it, it holds up here as well. But if you look at it, you know, I, it's interesting because, you know, Aladdin is one of the first movies that switches to male leads. I mean, if you look up to this point, you know, Disney, most of the movies centered around the princesses. Yes, they definitely had male lead characters. I mean, you know, Beauty and the Beast, the Beast is very much a character, but I think most people remember Belle from that movie. You know, you remember Ariel, you remember Sleeping Beauty, Snow White. Whereas this one, yes, Jasmine is very much a main part of this movie, but really your first introduction to the world and who you're following through this world is Aladdin. And it's an interesting switch. And it's not really one that they stuck with too much. They they do. I mean, I mean because they, they switch back. But after this, they kind of switch back and forth. You know, I mean, they, they went back with Mulan and Pocahontas were both female. You know, Hercules was a male lead. Tarzan was a male lead. Simba is a male lead. Yeah. Right. I I think that the issue that they were, they were finding, and again, this is, this is gonna, this is hard for me to say, but I, a lot of young males are not necessarily taught to see themselves in young female characters. So whenever Disney is making these movies, they're realizing that they're not, the male audience is not being attracted to these movies because they're a quote unquote girly movie. But if they make the main character a male, it appeals to young boys, but it still appeals to young girls because girls are always kind of told to just apply themselves into any situation. You can be like a boy or a girl. Um, So it's, it's definitely almost like a gender role kind of situation. Yeah, I will say though, I mean, even though I, I think to your point, what you know, what you're trying to get at is, you know, Disney kind of did this so that that way they would appeal more towards younger boys because younger boys want to see male leads in there. I will say they didn't necessarily completely abandon the female characters, though. I mean, in Aladdin, they have Jasmine. She is very much a main character and a main part of this movie. And even with some of the other movies like Hercules, like we talked about with Meg in there or you know when we get to Tarzan with Jane I mean they definitely have characters in there for you know young girls to kind of look up to as well yeah they do they're just not the main character it's 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 acceptable for the females to be kind of off to the side which again I'm not trying to pick a fight with Disney but that is something that is kind of messed up in our culture but let's talk about Jasmine for a second because Jasmine is so I didn't realize how quick witted she is, how much like she goes along. She's very quick whenever Aladdin says, Oh, this is my crazy sister or whatever. Um, and she immediately knows to play along. Um, she's just very smart and it's 
really it's really cool you know to watch her and because she is a very strong female character again and for her culture for her t- for this time period that this movie was released in. yeah we everything. talked about this when we talked about the live action version of it that you know they added an additional song for her and they gave her a little bit more to do and i thought they added a lot more but they really didn't i mean looking at the original mm-hmm. she definitely has like you said a lot a lot of you know agency i mean she definitely was pushing you know why do i have to marry a prince why do the rules have to be this way i mean a lot of the stuff that they kind of played up and made a big deal about going in the live action movie is in the original and you know we talked about this last episode that you know for the 90s and this one came out in 92 i mean disney had a lot of kind of progressive views in these movies and you know to have a movie where you know the female character saying hey i'm not just some prize to be won you know like i want to marry for love i want you know, I, I want to challenge the status quo, and to she kind wants of, to go out of the castle. Yeah, to or, kind of, like or, yeah, to kind of really show that hey, I don't want to just be locked up here. Um, it is really interesting, and I think it it was it was somewhat refreshing to see that 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 was a lot of that was in the original. Yes, yeah, but so those are definitely some of the strong points of Aladdin. But some of the things that, and this is why Aladdin didn't rank as high for us, is I think there's a lot of plot holes in this movie. Um, it, it is really hard to figure out. For example, how Jafar obviously has magic. He has a magic staff. It's very hard to figure out how his magic staff works. For example, why doesn't he just hypnotize the Sultan into making Jasmine marry him in the very beginning instead of going on this big journey to find the diamond in the rough? Well, I think the thing is with Jafar is he doesn't want to marry Jasmine. I think that's his kind of fallback, fallback, fallback plan <laughs> where he can't get the lamp and he can't get the power. He can marry her and kill her. I mean, but he doesn't. He, I mean, he really he wants to be Sultan, but like to your point, he has he's a, he's a kind of like a sorcerer, but he's still limited in his magic. So you know he wants the lamp to kind of be this all-powerful sorcerer and ruler. And that's why he wants the genie, because he knows his powers are limited. And Aladdin even plays into that. Like, hey, yeah, you're the most powerful sorcerer in the world, but yet you're still not as powerful as a genie. And so he's like, okay, no, make me a genie. And that's what is kind of his downfall. It's almost like it's his pride of, I need to be the greatest at everything. And again, I don't see him wanting to marry Jasmine as really his end goal. I think it's kind of like his other plans got thwarted. So that's his new plan. Okay. So why doesn't he just commit, like use his hypno stick to tell the Sultan, Hey, declare me Sultan. Like I just don't understand how that, that works. Like again, I don't think he wants to be Sultan. Like he wants, he wants absolute power that having a genie will give him. Um, cause even if you look at Aladdin, I mean, Aladdin's like, I want to be a prince, but even, t- even to that extent, he's not really a prince, you know I mean? There's still questions. So even a genie can't kind of make everybody believe that he's a prince. So if you imagine if, if let's say Jafar hypnotized the Sultan said, make me Sultan the rest, he's gonna have to hypnotize the whole town, you know, and he doesn't have that kind of power. And then you also just brought up something else that is a little shaky for me on this movie is that. You know, Aladdin, and I forget, it, it does kind of get addressed in the movie, um, but Aladdin wishes to be a prince, but then it gets undone. I believe maybe even Jafar unwishes it, but I, I'm not really sure how, how does that work? Like, how does, how does he get his wish un, undone? Because at the very end, you know, there's that debate of what is Aladdin going to do? Is he going to wish for Genie's freedom or is he going to make it so he can be with Jasmine? And I think that, you know, 
that part is a little weak. And I think Aladdin has an extra wish because in the beginning in the Cave of Wonders, it's established that the genie can use his magic without Aladdin officially making a wish. So Aladdin kind of tricks him into getting him out of the cave without making a wish. And then we are led to believe that he has to use his second wish for the genie to save him from drowning. But at that point, Aladdin never wishes for it. And the genie's down there like, is this what you want? I, I, I'm guessing this is what you want. You want me to yeah, save like you? Yeah, like the current blows his head so it looks like he's sort of kind of not. Yeah, but he never actually wishes for it. So I would argue he actually has, he actually had he another two wish. wishes. Yeah, and he actually used his second wish to free the genie and not the third one. But yeah, I'm not sure. So to your point, yeah, that, that kind of magic system is is maybe a little bit weak. And again, I mean, I think when they had Robin Williams and they had some of those songs, everything was just so grand and outlandish that it's just a lot of fun that a lot of people kind of overlook that stuff. But yeah, if you really think about it, you can, you can have some questions about it. I kind of wonder, you know, I found myself wondering watching this is the magic carpet, like the great, 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 great grandparent of Dr. Strange's cloak (laughs) because they have very similar personalities and And I I feel like they're related. And also the dad pants from onward. I mean, they all are like anthropomorphized, like objects essentially um and i i i actually had a question about that i forgot how delightful the carpet is it's it's very emotive despite the fact that it doesn't have a face and um what's also really interesting is if you look at the sequels they simplify the animation of the carpet it does not look the same from the first movie oh yeah because they were the next because they were like the direct-to-video sequels Yeah. yeah i will say you know again aladdin has great sidekicks and that's one of the you know the hallmarks of these you know top movies and also, so does Jafar. Iago is, yes. is I mean, Gil- Gilbert Godfrey plays Iago. And it is really cool to see in the movie, he plays Parrot. Like, he basically plays what his character is. So he will mimic things that he hears or act, like, kind of dumb around the Sultan. But then the second that he's gone, Iago's back to just being a, a normal character. So I I thought that was really cool to see how they played that up. Yeah. And we, we talked about this not on the podcast, but just kind of preparing for this. And, you know, I think it's interesting when you look at these, you know, top five, it's almost like, Hey, what makes a Disney movie successful? And, and what we kind of came up with when we looked, when we were looking at the top ones is most of the time, the movies that do better are ones that aren't necessarily set around like the, the regular physical world. They either don't have humans you know, in the Lion King, which is in our top five because we haven't mentioned it yet. So, you know, the the Lion King because they're all animals, or you have somebody like you know Beauty and the Beast where they're all turned into furniture and clocks and everything, or Aladdin where you have a genie and you have magic. They do better because it allows Disney to add this sense of whimsy and fantasy to it that allows them to have these big musical numbers and not take you out of the movie. So, mm-hmm. and what we talked about, like with hunchback last episode where, you know, it's a good movie, but then when you see him scaling Notre Dame and we're supposed to believe, okay, he walks with a limp, he has these disabilities, but he can basically be Spider-Man on, <laughs> on the outside of Notre Dame, that it takes you out a little bit of the movie a bit because, you know, you're like, okay, there's not this magical world or you, or his gargoyles talking. You're like, okay, is there magic or isn't there magic? And you're, and you're more worried about that because it seems to be established in like 
a physical world, whereas like Aladdin, you know the genie can do anything. So whenever he creates these, you know, grand musical numbers or, or things like that, it's more believable. And I think it's you know it's really interesting to kind of see that that you can see that thread across these movies. And it's the same way that Pixar makes great movies because basically they have no humans as the leads in any of their stories. And that's because when they were animating, it was very hard to animate humans. So they didn't use them in their early mm-hmm. stories, yeah. but they create these worlds that have their own rules. And then it's easier for you to kind of buy into the crazy stuff that happens in them versus worrying about like, Oh, that doesn't make sense <laughs> in like my life. So I, I think that's, it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So the next number, or so we're on number three now. So we're yes, getting, we're getting three. to the top and our number three movie. And this one, this was tough for me, but our number three movie is Mulan. So Mulan is a movie that I actually forgot how much I love this movie. I think Joe and I were in high school when we last watched this movie, I believe. I couldn't believe how many of the lines I was able to repeat to you I was surprised as we were watching it. Because you know every word of the Lion King, but you were basically saying every line to Mulan, and I basically had to tell you, please stop, because <laughs> yeah. I, I want to pay attention to what's going on yeah, in, it's a with real, the movie. It, I'm like one of those annoying people to watch movies with sometimes. <laughs> but this movie is so great, and I, I forgot that I loved it so much, but Mulan is maybe the first movie, for me at least, where I felt like I, I felt represented in that movie, because I, Mulan is a character who... I mean, all of these characters, if you look at every single one of these movies, they are all characters that don't fit in. Every single one of them, they, there's something about them that makes them not fit in. They're the outcast in some way. And she is no different, but it is the fact that she is supposed to be this proper lady that, um, you know, her parents want to dress her up and get her married and all those things, but she just doesn't feel like she's not that girly girl. And that was me growing up. I was definitely a tomboy. I wanted to be outside playing around, you know, learning martial arts or whatever. Um, and so I felt very seen with this movie. And so watching her go grow up and then like learning how to survive and thrive being herself. And then at the very end being accepted for who she is, that was inspirational to me. So I think that that's why this movie sticks with me so much. Yeah. And I agree with that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm very excited for the live action version mm-hmm. because again, we've, we kind of touched on this last episode when we talked about Pocahontas and Hunchback, but there are a lot of these movies and Mulan it fits this as well. And I think it does it better than Hunchback and Pocahontas, but it has a very like adult themes to it. That's yeah. it's not, you know, it, it's, it's a movie for young kids, but it is almost more for, like tweens and teenagers as, you know, what does it mean to grow up? What does it mean to have my identity and that struggle of how society sees me and their expectations for me versus what I want to accomplish in my life? And I think those are really powerful themes and they're really good themes to explore more. And, you know, the, the issue you have with a lot of these movies is they're like an hour and a half and mm-hmm. the plot has to move really fast and, you know, a lot of things get cut, like the Huns, like the Huns are attacking. And then I blinked, I, like I looked down to take a note. I look up and I'm like, wait, are the Huns defeated already? Like, did I miss something? <laughs> and I was like, whoa, I thought that was the point of the movie. But I'm really excited with the live action because it's going to be longer and they're going to be able to explore those themes more. And I really think that's what makes these movies so interesting. 
just on Mulan as a character. So I know that with Beauty and the Beast, I said I felt like Belle was a, we, t- we were told that Belle is bookish and she's really smart, but we didn't really get to see that in action. This is not the case with Mulan. For, so at the beginning, we don't see her reading books or anything, but we see her being ingenuitive with how she does her chores. So she gets little brother, which is her dog, who's adorable and why is he not in the park more? But anyway, um, she gets little brother. She makes this little tiny like thing where he chases after the bone and he does her like he feeds the chickens and all this other stuff so we know right off the bat she's very intelligent even though she doesn't fit in with some of the other things and then this comes back whenever she they're fighting the huns you know it's looking bad for them it looks like they are not going to make it out out alive they have one cannon left and she takes that cannon and instead of shooting it at the leader who's right in front of her she shoots the mountain and gets rid of all of the army, which is more important than getting rid of the leader because, I mean, yeah, he survives, but he was more easily taken down. You can't take down an army, but you can take down a, a, per, a few people. So I felt like this idea of a smart female character was really well done and followed through. I mean, not female, just a smart character in general. Um, it was really well followed through with and it was shown rather than told to us. Definitely. And if you're looking at like the sidekicks, I mean, you mentioned her dog, which is, you know, really cute. <laughs> I mean, Mushu with Eddie Murphy, he's the best sidekick since the genie. So since, you know, Aladdin, we just mm-hmm. talked about, but these movies actually came out six years apart. So in between Aladdin and Mulan, we had uh, Lion King, Pocahontas, Hunchback, and Hercules. Um, and now, yes, the Lion King did have some great sidekicks. Timon and Pumbaa, yeah. But in terms of just like that, that energy. I mean, I, I think it's interesting that you have two really great comedians and they kind of they yeah. follow that 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 model again, but it worked. It works really well with Mushu. I mean, it, it was know, good. That- dishonor on you, dishonor on your cow. I mean, it's just <laughs> it, it's it's really funny and it works really well. And I think if you don't have Mushu, I think this movie doesn't work quite as well. No, this movie de- definitely doesn't work quite as well. I mean, tip of the hat to Michael Eisner because he knew he could bring over, you know, this is coming from our interview with Tom Bancroft saying that he knew he could get Eddie Murphy to come over and uh, to to do this role. And it was such a smart move to pull Eddie Murphy in here because his comedic timing is fantastic. Um, the jokes that they write for, for Mushu are great. Even the, the opening scene we get with Mushu is fantastic. And I think that one thing that is so powerful again about this movie is that Mushu and Mulan in many ways mirror each other um, because Mushu is established from the, from the get go as a screw up. We know that he has, he's gotten somebody beheaded in the family. We see that he goes to awaken like the great dragon and he accidentally breaks the statue so then he has to go fill that role and so he is a misfit just like Mulan and so together they have to then um, you know try to you know overcome their past and and their inadequacies together and I think that that makes the story even stronger yeah I think the the couple kind of knocks I have on Mulan I think one I, I mentioned you know the Huns get defeated pretty quickly. So I think it's a little bit thin kind of on that plot line. Um, again, you know, kind of some of the, the other plots of just how society views you and expectations and things I think are very strong. But I think you know they kind of push this main plot line as the Huns are attacking. I think it kind of gets wrapped up a little bit too quickly. And there's not – there are definitely some iconic songs in here. But I feel like just compared to some of the other movies, there's just not as many – 
songs that that you really remember. Uh, um, Make a man out of you yeah, is, is definitely great song. Th- th- no, I'm not saying they're not great songs. That's definitely a great song. But I'm just saying compared to like Aladdin, let's say. I mean, I think Aladdin has a handful of songs you remember yeah. versus Mulan. So Mulan only has like yeah, it has reflection, which is a good song that. I think there's a post-credit one that was sung by Christina Aguilera, who was, was a huge star at the time. Um, but yeah, Make a Man Out of You is definitely the biggest one. Donny Osmond sings that, of course, and it, it's fantastic. But um, yeah, it, it, but there are some I- iconic scenes like uh, Mulan mastering the quarantine cut pre-quarantine where she just chops her hair off with a sword. Awesome. Um, <laughs> that's an iconic scene right there. The fact that she lights the... Uh, the, the cannon with Mushu, she like pulls on his tail and he shoots fire. I mean, there's just... Yeah, and she's definitely winning a fight with all the Disney princesses. I mean, she's... <laughs> she's a ninja. Yeah, she is a ninja. And I, I do think, you know, Mulan resonates with a lot of people. Like like you said, I think a lot of people feel they like Mulan as a character and they really like her as a Disney princess for everything she stands for and kind of, you know, her power and her strength. But maybe maybe people don't like the movie, you know, Mulan as much. But I, I really do think Mulan as a character definitely resonates with a lot of people. Yeah, and she, I mean, she's such a great, she's such a great leader. And I don't know, I, it, I yeah, I, I love, I love this character. It's, it's, it's just a, it's a fantastic movie, fantastic character. Love it. Also, she bleeds. This is something we don't see in a lot of the Disney movies. Movies. So I was like, is this the first one? Actually, the first Disney movie with a character bleeding believe it or not is sleeping beauty so uh maleficent as a dra- in dragon form yeah. gets shot there's not much blood in these movies and it makes it very difficult and, to find out what's happening and especially like pocahontas people are getting shot and they're just falling over and you're like wait did they get shot did something happen it's hard to tell inconsistent use of nipples like some characters have them some don't it's very weird okay so on to our number two pick so our number two pick is tarzan which makes Lion King number one. So we'll get to Lion King in a minute. But number two is Tarzan. And I was honestly kind of surprised that Tarzan ended up this high. But I do feel like it's warranted. Oh, yeah. It's the last movie of the Renaissance. Uh, Came out in 1999. I think it has a lot of things going for it. My one big thing, I'll make this kind of one key point uh, and then... Angel, I'll let you go on, on your point here. But my one key point is I think this is the most perfected use of computer graphics that they use in all these movies. So Beauty and the Beast mm-hmm. kind of showed what they could do in one scene, and it took them like m- months or years to get that one scene done. But I mean, but Tarzan, it is used so perfectly and it is integrated mm-hmm. so well in all the scenes with with him sliding through the vines and going through the jungle, whereas a lot of his other movies definitely use computer animation. Like Hercules had it with the monsters he was fighting and the Titans, but it, it just seemed kind of out of place to a certain extent. Like it, it, you could tell that they were clearly computer animated versus the rest of the surroundings, which it's was well integrated in this. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Tarzan, it's so well integrated. You could not tell. And I think for that point alone, it, it was kind of their their best use of that across the movie, and then you have a a great uh, soundtrack written by Phil Collins in very much the same way that he did they, that he did that for us. Yes, <laughs> in very much the same way you had Elton John uh, write songs for The Lion King. They kind of you know use that model again as well, and I think that's why this movie works so well. And it has such a good heart underneath it. I, this movie has 
just again, like I feel like Mulan has this too. It, it just has a very strong story. So it opens up and, and probably one of the harshest one of the harshest scenes in all of Disney movies where you have the loss of Tarzan's parents, which is terrible. And you see their bodies actually lying there dead, which is more than you usually see um, with the exception of our next movie. But uh, their bodies are lying there. And then you also it's alluded to that, that Kala loses her baby. I mean, that is that was rough. To I was the same Jaguar. Yeah. And so I, I was very taken aback by by just how powerful it is. I forgot how how powerful it was and emotional it is um and yeah it's just this whole idea of tarzan not knowing where he fits in you know he being raised as a gorilla but knowing he's different and wanting to kind of fit in but also knowing that he's not fully accepted and kerchak always reminds him of that too yeah it's a very common theme in kind of the back half of the renaissance of this us versus them who are you? I mean, kind of the same. We talk, talked about Mulan. It's kind of she's determining what world she fits in. Tarzan is. And it, it is this us well, versus them. It's the humans versus the gorillas in this instance, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, and it's very understandable. Tarzan's whole dilemma is very understandable where it's like, you know that he just doesn't feel 100% accepted. You understand why uh, it's it's they make it very clear. You feel for him. And then it's also understandable why he brings these other uh creatures that are just like him in it's 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 similar i almost feel like it's kind of similar to pocahontas where she goes out she actively meets the white men realizes that they're this you know they're the same but hers is almost like yeah she's she is going out and she's doing it out of curiosity but she is really it is really endangering her and it ends up turning out well but Tarzan does the same, like a very similar thing with his, with what he's doing. This connection between humans and animals is so touching. The fact that Kala takes him in and she, you know, treats him as her own to fill that void that she has. Um, It's just, yeah. They also did, I mean, a nice job of laying the groundwork. And you mentioned this as we were watching this, because whenever he meets Jane, he picks up on English really quickly. And I was like, wait, how does he learn English that Mm -hmm. fast? But you, you mentioned it and you're right. They laid the groundwork Mm -hmm. early that he can mimic almost any sound. And he does, he makes elephant noises and he makes a lot of different sounds. And Kala even the sound of the gun. Yeah. And Kala even tells him, but even when he was younger, Kala even tells him, make your own sounds. Don't copy people. And, you know, it's nice. It's it's little things like that, like where we talked about in some of these other movies where there's some plot holes. Yeah, things come out of nowhere. Right. Whereas this, they lay that groundwork so you could look at it as a plot hole, like, wait, how does this guy learn English in, you know, two days? But <laughs> it's because he's basically mimicking them and he can mimic any sound. And so you know, he's able to kind of pick up on things. And so that, again, it just kind of, you know, tightens the movie up a little bit. I will say some some facts about this movie. And again, this was a, a pretty big movie for Disney. It was dubbed into 35 different languages, which was the most uh, for Disney at the time. Wow. It actually uh, did really well at the box office. You know, previously Mulan, Hercules, they were kind of a little bit down. You know, coming off of some of the other movies, but but Tarzan, you know, did really well. Um, I think this is interesting. This is one of the movies where the characters really don't sing, um, and. And the directors, uh, it was directed by Kevin Lima and Chris Buck, both who have done some other, you know, incredible Disney movies. Frozen. But they didn't want Tarzan to just be singing. You know, they didn't feel like it fit. And I think it yeah. works really well. And so that's why you have Phil Collins kind of acting as the narrator. Interestingly, I saw this, I read this on on Wikipedia, but that 
they said Phil Collins wrote most of these songs as part of just improvised sessions (laughs) uh, from just reading kind of the treatment of of the script and that he didn't really sit down and come up with these. He did write uh, You'll Be In My Heart in Two Worlds as kind of like the anthem um, and kind of the, the, the thesis statement here for the movie. But a lot of the other ones, like the camp song and different things like that, he kind of just wrote like on a whim just as he was doing these recording sessions. And I think you can all, you can tell this um, that it is he did this because there are areas where the beats of the music match the animation and I, I think it's just because they probably work together so closely. We're like, there's that montage of him, of Tarzan growing up and you have the beats of the drums and it's mimicking, it's being mimicked by like a spear being thrown through fruit and it's going boom, 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 boom. Like it, it's just, it's such a good integration of all of that together. It's, it's seamless it, 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 and it's beautiful the way that it, it's done. And of course, like there's that in sync stomp song, like that song, just delightful. It's such a joyful song. It's so much fun. Um, there's a lot of symbolism in this movie. You see Jane when she comes up, she's very like tied up and very like proper. proper yeah. yeah. And then as she moves throughout, um, I mean, of course she's going to be getting dirtier and things. So she's not going to be as like well kept, although she's probably been on the ship for a long time before that. But anyway, she she loosens up as she's there because she, you know as she's interacting she's becoming more wild she's kind of letting go a little bit um i i like that uh i liked that i appreciated that i thought it was cool this movie also has a lot of of other themes that you or or times in your life that you could really get more from it if you become a parent i think that that connection between the mother and child that bond uh it would bring a new level of understanding to this movie. Also, this is a great movie that you could show a child if you ever adopted a child because of the way that they bring Tarzan in and how she kind of explains that, you know, she's, he's not theirs, but she still loves him the same. Um, So it just has a lot of those really cool themes to it. And then also as we were watching it, I couldn't help but notice Tarzan looks a lot like Weird Al Yankovic. So I started looking up the, the, the comparison. He does now you mentioned and it. And then I found another one and it, he looks maybe even more like Jared Padalecki from from Supernatural or Gilmore, Gilmore Girls. Girl, yeah. So um yeah look I like at the, the side animation by style. I like the way he's drawn. Yeah he's, I like the way Tarzan is drawn. He's really yeah he's he has a fun way that he's drawn like that very pointy chin. I know that we just kind of got off on random like funny things, but the very end of the movie again is very powerful where Kerchak finally accepts Tarzan. Again, it goes back to that very emotional, like you feel very invested in these yeah, characters. Yeah, and I think he almost always accepted him because he told him, you were always one of us. Like I think he, to your point, he didn't fully accept him, I think, until he said that at the end and he realized, hey, Tarzan was really there for them. But I think at you know, some point of him always accepted him because I think otherwise he would not have let him live there that long, you know? And it was kind of like he, he, he realized, Hey, you were always one of us. I maybe didn't want to fully believe it. I maybe didn't want to admit to it, but you, you were always, you know, one of us and part of this family. Well, it does kind of pick up where they left off. There was that earlier scene where he killed Sabor and he, 
presents Sabor to Kerchak and they are about to have this very powerful moment and that's when they hear the gunshot. So they're in- interrupted in the midst of almost being accepted and so he never really gets the t- chance to tell Tarzan this and then of course it goes right into will these guys present a threat to my family. So yeah, it- it's-, it's a really nice callback to that scene. Right. All right, a couple things real quick. So one, why does Tarzan have to wear a loincloth? If he's raised <laughs> by gorillas... None of them wear clothes. None of the other animals in the jungle wear clothes. Why would they make him wear clothes? Great I just question. noodle on that. All right. Here's my theory, though. If you don't want to hear this theory, you just want to hear us talk about Lion King, jump ahead a minute. But <laughs> here's my theory, though. I think Tarzan and Beauty and the Beast are connected. And I think that Jane is either Belle's daughter or granddaughter. Now, if we say she's Belle's daughter, that means that her father is the beast, which he very well could be because we don't know the beast, you know, last name or first name. Now, I know, you know, later on in a video game, apparently they say the beast's first name is Adam, but that's not in Beauty and the Beast. So that's not canon. So it potentially could be them because uh, Jane's last name is, is Porter. So potentially that, that could be, you know, the beast's last name. But um, it, it could also very well be her her granddaughter. I think it's more likely that it's it's her daughter, though. So I kind of looked this up. What got me thinking of this is because Jane wears yellow. She wears a yellow dress very much in the same kind of style and color that Belle wears. Belle most famously wore a yellow dress. They make mention um, to it that she's very... Uh, always coming up with stories, very much like her mother, very much into her stories, <laughs> which we know Belle is a, is a, a bookworm. And so looking into this, Beauty and the Beast, some people take, think takes place around the 1840s or 1850s based on just kind of the technology that's used. Tarzan um, takes place around the 1880s, 1890s. Um, some people say it takes place more around the turn of the century, but they do make mention um, that you know Queen Victoria and Charles Darwin would love to see Tarzan. And Charles Darwin died in 1889, I believe. And Queen Victoria's reign was in the 80s um, till a little bit later. So if Darwin had to be alive, then we couldn't go any later than, than 1889. So if you say it takes place in the late 80s, Beauty and the Beast takes place in, let's say, the 40s, 1840s, you'd have about 40 years in between there. We know the Beast was 21 at the end of Beauty and the Beast because that's what time he had. So he could be, in his, he could be 60. 61, which her father looks like he could be in his 60s. He would have had to have shrunk a lot. Well, he could have. I mean, people shrink as they grow older sometimes. (laughs) You don't know what the long-term effects of a curse are on your health. (laughs) And, you know, and Jane, you know, she's maybe, you know, 20 or 30. So I think what happened is Belle somehow tragically died because obviously, no, no, obviously Beauty and the Beast takes place in, in France and they're you know, they have a, they're from London. She has an English accent, but we don't necessarily know that the beast is French. He could have very easily had family in London. So something could have happened to Belle. That's his summer castle. Yeah. Something could have happened to Belle. Maybe that's why he was there alone in the first place. That's why his parents weren't there. He was at his summer castle and he got cursed. Okay. <laughs> so this is all making sense. You're, you're, you're helping me out here. So, so something happened with Belle. They moved back to London. Jane is raised in London. She has a, a British accent. It makes all the more sense that her father would be interested in gorillas because he was covered in fur himself and maybe he feels a <laughs> kinship to that them. might be a little bit of a stretch. I think it's there. So I think 
that Jane well, is Belle's but daughter. But you're forgetting the piece de resistance. Why on earth does Jane have the teacups? Yes, that's, that's the other why. Thing. That's why thing. where you yes. even had this idea to begin with. In the with. camp, they also show the tea set that is Mrs. Potts and Chip. And so obviously Mrs. Potts and Chip were it's turned... An heirloom. Correct. But they were turned into that tea set modeled after the Beast real tea set. They were just <laughs> transformed into those. So she has them as a family heirloom. So Jane is, is Belle and Beast daughter and her father in Tarzan is actually the beast. You're welcome. I just blew this thing wide open. So, all right. So let's roll into our, our number one pick. What we think is the greatest movie of the Disney Renaissance. It is the Lion King. And before we get into our thoughts, let's hear from Matt and Susie from the Imagine Ears podcast on why they also picked the Lion King as the best movie in the Disney Renaissance. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Susie. And we're the host of the Imagineers Disney podcast. And we love all of the Disney Renaissance films, but I think for the both of us, our favorite Disney animated feature is The Lion King. Without a doubt. Yes, The Lion King. So The Lion King was my favorite movie growing up. Um, I still claim it as my favorite movie just because, you know, I knew what was going on back in the day. I knew I picked a good favorite movie. Um, the story, the characters, character development, humor, animation, music. I mean, it has it all. It really it does. It really does have it all. Uh, I'm still recovering from Mufasa's death. Uh, <laughs> still sticks with me, but I mean, it's it's the highs and lows. There's there's laughing, there's crying, yeah. and that musical score is just phenomenal. Oh, I mean, it, it is a masterpiece in of itself. Uh, Very moving. Yeah. So, uh Good life lessons, too, though. I think you have to put that in, too. There's a great message in The Lion King. Um, Everything so the, the light touches is our kingdom. Sure. It's all my stuff. <laughs> Just kidding. Why cool? Hakuna Matata. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, no worries. Um, but, you know, you you can always... Don't forget who you are. You can always come back to, you know, any situation. You don't have to put all that pain behind you. You can conquer it and move on so the older you get there's always something you can find in a disney movie and the lion king is just full of great nuggets yep it is our favorite and we hope it is one of your favorites too all right so thanks matt and Susie, um for sharing your thoughts on that so all right so let's get into the lion king here um we mentioned angel you already know all the words to this movie <laughs> And we also mentioned earlier, you know, this one does well because they're all creatures. It's not set in the human world. So that suspension of disbelief is a lot easier. They can go a lot more fantastical with their musical numbers. You know, I just can't wait to be king. The, the color scheme changes. Animals are doing crazy things, you know, standing on top of each other that in normal world would not make sense. But, you know, in this animated world makes a lot of sense. Um, I will say first thing, and then I will cede the floor to you because I know you love The Lion King, so you can tell us why this movie is so great. They need John Oliver in this movie. He is the one... <laughs> Rowan Atkinson's great, no, though. No, he is the one thing from the live-action movie that they need to go, and they could probably just dub his lines because they basically did shot for shot. They need to put his voice in the animated version, and then it is easily by far the, the greatest movie. I, was, I would even say that... Uh, I What is it? Um... Timon is voiced by uh, Billy Eichner and Pumbaa is Seth Rogen. I'd almost say that even even their performances. I, I think that no, those, you don't need those that. were the three John characters Oliver. that I, I found very delightful in this in the live no, action. I'm good with everybody else, but I think you had John Oliver in this movie. 
He and does it, sound like a bird. He just, already says adds, about himself that he looks like a bird. Yeah, it just adds a complete other level to it. <laughs> okay. So this movie, I mean, again, it gives you it gives you all the feels. So looking over my notes here, I I mean, I cried during Circle of Life. It's such a powerful song. It is so beautiful the way that it, it is animated the way that 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 woman's voice that sings it is just so powerful it's wonderful and then also i mean of course when mufasa dies you know that is you already are so invested in mufasa as a character it is really it, it, they did such a good job of developing him as a good father a good leader um he even has a little humor to him i never understand the, understood the line before sunrise he's your son i never got that when i was a kid i, I was like that yeah, doesn't that make really, any sense that was a good line yeah and then i was like oh he's saying he doesn't want bothered by You're his right. son right mufasa now. is like a practical jokester because he he's, he messes with Zazu and he makes those jokes. Like it, it does add, it, it adds a little bit of likability to him. So you're right. Like you, they have a very short amount of time to make you care and like him before his death right. and adding those little bits of humor do that very well. And that is also, I think why this movie does well because it has humor in it. It has the music in it. Mm-hmm. It kind of has these great themes of, discovering who you are in it and and kind of you know coming back like you can go back to where you came from and that you know almost nothing is too bad to overcome for family type thing you know like Simba he carries that guilt Mm -hmm. but he learns you know he shouldn't he needs to address his past and move on and his family you know kind of welcomes him back yeah. You know, type thing. And so there there is a lot of that really great stuff. I mean, the music too. I'm sure you'll get into to all of this stuff. So <laughs> Yeah. And so talking about how good of a character Mufasa is, he needs like a foil, somebody that kind of balances him out. It's very different than him. And his brother Scar acts as a perfect foil, you know, where Mufasa is, he's brave. He is, um, you know, f- he's I mean he's kind of funny in his own way but he's serious a lot of the time Scar is kind of the opposite Scar's not really that brave he always gets other people pretty much to carry out most of the dirty work dirty work except for he does kill his own brother on his own but he doesn't um you know try to kill Simba I mean Scar succeeds though yeah Scar's the one villain that I mean he says this is what I'm gonna do he sings a song this is what's gonna happen and it happens and he has a a reign of power that's probably for a few years at least as Simba grows up. I think I read somewhere or maybe we watched a a video. Maybe it was like Matt Pat's video. He talked about, I think it was like seven, maybe seven years they say for a a grown lion to get a full mane like, like Simba gets. So, you know, Simba's probably like five to seven years old. So he actually is ruling that kingdom for quite some time and destroys it in the meantime. So yeah, honestly, rightfully so. I mean, in the animal kingdom, (laughs) when one lion defeats another lion, I mean, they become leader. Now, granted, he kind of did it in an underhanded way, but he technically defeated Mufasa. We don't really want to talk about how this actually would apply to the real animal, like animal kingdom, because then we get into Simba and Nala probably possibly being siblings. I also think you get into the other issue where at the beginning of the movie, all of these animals are there cheering that a new lion that's going to come eat them is born. And they're so excited. Like, <laughs> yes, a new predator for us to run from. Let us let us go and, and show our respects. And, and in the animal kingdom, they'd be like, wait, new lion, I'm out. And then, and they they also establish the fact that predator and prey can talk to each other because Nala goes after Pumbaa, yeah, and he's of, like begging for his life. It kind of goes to the Little Mermaid of like 
do mer people eat fish? <laughs> like, you know, yeah, it's interesting that, that all these people can talk to each other. Um, but they do explain that. Again, I mean, Mufasa kind of explains it's the circle of life. It's this whole idea that, yes, we eat the gazelles and the antelope, but we only eat what we need. And when we die, we become the grass that they eat. So without us, they wouldn't have food. And without them, we wouldn't have food. And it, he, it and it does it explains it again, kind of tightening up plot holes. Yeah. I mean, it explains this whole thing, and, and it and it does it in a great way that I think young kids can understand. I mean, so how many how many kids you know you know or even growing up, everybody knows. Oh, it's a circle of life. It's a circle of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, people like you get that. It was easy enough, and maybe you don't fully comprehend the le- the impact of it when you're young, but that's kind of in your head, and then. As you grow up, you understand more what it means, but it is a really interesting way to kind of portray that. Yeah. And I would say for a lot of the, you know, at least the 90s kids, the first major loss you go through is the loss of Mufasa. I mean, it is huge and impactful at that point. Yeah. Cause in time this came out in my, 94. Yeah. And that point in time in my life, I don't, I don't think really anybody probably in my life had died. And like that is, I mean, it, that's emotional and it happens and it's kind of a lot of parents don't know how to address that with their kids. And this movie does a, a pretty good job of explaining, you know, you don't really get over it, but you learn to live with it and it becomes part of you. And then you can look back on like happy memories. And that's kind of where Simba gets to almost at the end where he's able to, you know, interact with his father in the clouds, which he gets like this really extra cool benefit of being able to sort of talk to his dad sometimes it seems but um yeah it's just and then they incorporate that really well in whenever they they're doing the looking up at the stars scene and they're talking about how the great kings of the past are up there so again it's very much a black panther vibe to it i mean i know black (laughs) panther came out like 20 years later but it is a very much of that kind of ancestral plane idea type thing yeah yeah so it it, it, it's again it's what we kind of talked about with some of the other movies where they establish something earlier on that they then call back to and so this is why these are you know our top couple movies because they actually draw on some of these really important things that they established earlier in the movie yeah and i think there's something to be said with lion king too that it spawned a worldwide phenomenon Broadway musical. Yes. I mean, so there's there's definitely a Beauty and the Beast musical. They did make a Tarzan musical, a Little Mermaid one. And I think Be- I think Beauty and the Beast was probably the next most successful one. And, th- and that still runs occasionally. Aladdin? Oh, How about Aladdin? Aladdin? Well, but Aladdin, Aladdin's more recent. You're correct. Aladdin's kind of the most recent one here. So that that, that doesn't necessarily have the longevity that, that the other ones have. But The Lion King has been you know, going on for 20 plus years. It's like the biggest, you know, Broadway musical. So I think that just goes to show you how great the songs are because... And how great the story is. Yeah, and very much like with Frozen, um, when they made that, they had to add additional songs to mm-hmm. kind of fill in everything. Whereas the Lion King musical... We have a... There's a few new songs in that one. Yeah, but not many. I mean, it's basically... It's basically the songs from the movie, and they also pull in some songs from like the sequels. Yeah, there's He Lives in You, and then I think that the hyenas have a song. I can't remember what the song is, but the hyenas right. have a song that's right. But it's not the oh, no, like it's a song too. So, the, I mean, there are a, a few additional songs, but I think for the most part, I mean, it really is just taking the music from the movie and, and kind of replaying that. And it, it does really well. So Yeah. Um, and another thing about The Lion King that is so, you know, so great is that 
again, I touched on this with, you know, Tarzan. There's some symbolism in that movie. There's some really nice overt symbolism in in The Lion King where you have Simba after he gets in trouble um, and almost gets killed by the hyenas with Nala and the elephant graveyard, how he steps in Mufasa's paw print. And that whole scene of him just, you know, realizing that, yeah, he's not ready to fill in for his father's paw prints, which then is very... It, there's a very interesting contrast because the immediate scene that's right after that is Mufasa's death. And and it's, it, it, it is calling back to that thing that Simba's not ready yet to lose his father. He hasn't, he hasn't grown up enough yet. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't have the maturity yet to do that. And he realizes it at that point in time. And another thing that happens that I, I've never really questioned this before, but it's, I just can't wait to be king. You see that, that whole you know, I talked about, we talked about how in Beauty and the Beast, they have Be Our Guests, and it's a really fun scene. We, I referenced this. And this particular song, you know, the animals in The Lion King are relatively realistic looking. And then whenever you get to I Can't Wait to Be King, they all of a sudden are different colors. Everything's rainbow. Everything's different. And I, I kind of wondered why, but it is kind of I think it's because of the fantasy that Simba has going on. You know, he can't wait to be king. He thinks he's ready. He he has this fantasy of what it's like to be a king. You know, kings are always brave and all these things that he addresses whenever he talks to Mufasa. And it's just, it's 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 like a call to the fact that this is all a big fantasy of Simba's. So I think it's it's interesting what they do with the color palette there. Yeah, so I think, you know, overall Lion King for us you know it's just number 1 it it's a the it's a very strong movie you know it has uh you know great story the great musical numbers um kind of great soundtrack you know i will say again it, we've we've picked on i think all these movies a little bit so i think you know maybe one you know minor uh critique of this is i, I feel like simba's journey maybe isn't as developed as it could be. I mean, he essentially kind of runs away and is almost forced to come back. He definitely does have some growth there uh, in the end eventually, but I do think for the most part, he's he's kind of happy like living away and he's not really concerned about the pride until Nala says, hey, you got to come back. Scar's ruining everything. Yeah, I, I think that to your point that you know, if they're, you're talking about what character, what main character can you connect with more? If it was between Lion King, Tarzan, and Mulan, I'd say probably Tarzan and Mulan. I, I think that maybe they're stronger main characters, but I think the Lion King, where it excels is the yeah. the side characters. Yeah, I was just saying, I think just all around, like if you're kind of looking at, you know, villain, story, side characters, music, music. everything, the Lion King is the most well-rounded of them all. And I think that's why it makes sense. It's at number one for wait, us. Wait, wait. So. D- I'm sorry. Did you say that the song with the word, the circle of life is the most well-rounded? It is. It definitely <laughs> is. So, all right. So definitely let us know um, if you agree let or us know disagree where we went with wrong. us. Yeah. Because again, I feel like we could make uh, you know different arguments for these on different days. So again, our, our final, our final ranking is number one, the Lion King, two, Tarzan, three, Mulan, four, Aladdin, five, Beauty and the Beast, six, Hercules, seven, Pocahontas, eight, Hunchback of Notre Dame, nine, Little Mermaid, and 10, The Rescuers Down Under. Right. So definitely let us know 
Um, if you agree with those or disagree with those, um, you can let us know over on our uh, Facebook page, Enchanted Ears. But even better is if you go to our Facebook group, the Enchanted Ears family. We're over there more interacting with our listeners more. So you can, we can definitely have more of a debate and discussion over on our private uh, Facebook page. So be sure to check that out. Yeah, yeah. We I've I've enjoyed interacting with with people on there so much like so much so far. So the more we can build that community and that family, that would be awesome. Definitely. So and thanks everybody again for listening each week. Uh, make sure you leave us a rating or a review, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you for letting us your ears. And we'll see you here next Monday. Bye.